Welcome to HR Latte, your connection to all things HR. Today's great HR department is foundational for today's successful business. Listen in as host Rayanne Thorne gets personal with practitioners and technologists, experts and thought leaders who care about the world of human resources. And now for your next cup of talent management, whipped to perfection. Hey, everybody. Welcome to HR Latte. This is Rayanne Thorne, your host. My guest today is Ron Weens. He's the author of the book, Building Organizations That Leap Tall Buildings in a Single Bound. And we're going to be discussing this over a few episodes. Ron is a speaker, an expert on cultural change, an advisor, an author, obviously. He's here to talk about the book. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you. Can you give us an introduction of yourself and how you came to be an expert on cultural change? Okay. Well, I've been doing this for a very long time, and uh, I got into it about 40 years ago. I was a very young manager. And my boss came to me and uh, said, Ron, we have a failing project. It's not a very large one, but it's critical to the organization. Uh, I was wondering if you could take it over and turn it around. Being 20-something and being a lot more confident than I had any right to be, I said, sure. And uh, then I got there and I examined the project. And the, the manager that was there before me had about 25 years' experience on me. And when I examined what he was doing, he was doing everything right from a management perspective, and still the project was failing. My first thought was, I don't have a clue of what I'm supposed to do here. My second thought was, how do I get myself off this project? And then my third thought was, too late. I've made my bed. I've got to lie in it. So I said, well, this is the time to experiment. I know that just repeating what has been done will not be lead to success. So I tried some different things. And lo and behold, the project turned around and went on to be a great success. The organization came to me and rewarded me. And you can guess how they rewarded me. They gave me a bigger, dirtier project. How nice of them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I have a characteristic, a personal characteristic, that anytime I do something, when I come to the end, I sit down and I think, what went right, what went wrong, and why did things work, why didn't things work? So my 40 years has been an ongoing experiment. After working for this organization for a couple of years, I got a reputation for doing turnarounds. And so I went off and formed my own company. And I got into doing mega turnarounds. And these would be uh, doing projects, turning around projects from $10 million to $500 million, involving 100 plus people and spanning uh, two or three years of duration. I was getting phenomenal results. I was taking projects from worst in class to best in class without breathing hard. About 25 years ago, I thought, gee, you know, if you're working on a project, it's a couple hundred million dollars, it involves a uh, 100 plus people, it spans a couple of years, this is really an organization. And there was, or there isn't much difference between this project and an organization. So I started pl- applying my learnings to organizations in an attempt to move organizations up the performance curve, and I got very similar results. And so, my, and that's what my book is based on. My book is not theory. My book is based on 40 years of experimentation, trying, succeeding, and writing that down, and building a system, a system for building high-performance cultures, high-performance cultures that lead to high-performance organizations. So quite simply, that's what I'm about. Well, it sounds like you are indeed an expert, and I appreciate you taking the time. 
to join us on HR Latte to cover all of these things. Culture is a big topic of conversation today. We're so interested in making sure that we hire the right people that often we forget how important it is to take care of those right people once they're in the door. And culture is a big part of that. So several key points that you touch in the book are about intelligence, emotional intelligence, relationship intelligence, and corporate intelligence. If you could take a moment and let's talk about each of these and help us understand where we're going to be going in in this series, because we're going to address each of these individually moving forward in the series here on HR Latte. Absolutely. And this goes to the core of, of the message that I have to share. But first, I'm going to back up with something you said. Uh, in terms of it's important that we hire the right people uh, that fit into the organization. Here's the paradox that many people do not appreciate. I can go into an organization that has an underperforming culture, and uh, I can go out and replace everyone in the organization with the right attitude, the right approach, the right behaviors. I'll come back in three years, and eight times out of ten, the old culture has come back and has changed the people into the old behaviors. And that's part of the paradox of culture. And it's because what drives, many things drive culture, well, actually four things drive culture, but one of them are the processes, policies, and procedures within the organization. So you have to pay attention to those, but we'll come back to that later. You wanted to um, talk about, or a, a brief definition of how I view emotional intelligence, which I'll refer to as EI, relationship intelligence, which I will refer to as RI, and, and corporate intelligence, which I'll re- refer to as CI. It, and I, I'm interested in those things, those, those three intelligence for one reason. How do they drive performance? How can they be used to give a substantial lift to an organization's performance? And to understand my definitions and the relevance of my definitions, I'd like to provide you a little context first. And that context is the transformation that our organizations are going through at this point in time. Our societies of the developed uh, economies have essentially been moved into the knowledge age. And we are in the process of moving our management styles from an industrial age management style to a knowledge age management styles. Unfortunately, this is the bad news, most organizations' management styles are still firmly ensconced in an industrial age approach. And you know you work in an organization that is taking an industrial age approach to how they manage their people if you hear the following phrase, we all have jobs, and if we do our jobs well, we will succeed. And that's an industrial age view, because what this is, it says people can be treated as independent entities. They can essentially be treated and managed as widgets. In the industrial age, in an industrial age approach to management, you are managing the human interface boundary. You give people clear roles, you uh, give them clear targets, you hold them accountable, and you have a work breakdown structure that allows the individuals uh, to be managed and, and, and assess, assessed independent of other staff. Now, in the knowledge age economy, you still are managing the individual at the human interface boundary. You still give a clear role. You still give clear targets. You still hold people accountable. So that's all still relevant. You're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. But the first change is that the work breakdown structures allows you to manage the individual and to only now partially assess them. You can't get a complete assessment of, of the individual through their own work in a knowledge age economy. There are three additional things, and these all relate to EI, RI, and CI. Three additional areas that have to be managed. 
you have to reach across that human interface boundary and you have to go inside the person. And, yet, and, and it's now the manager's responsibility to manage how people view themselves. And I'll come back and explain that more deeply in a second. And that's emotional intelligence, or you're managing the emotional intelligence of an organization. The second new feature about managing in, in the knowledge economy is you have to manage the space, the seemingly empty space between people. And this is the relationship space. And this is relates to the development of an organization's relationship intelligence. And the third additional thing you have to manage is the relationship connection of the people within an organization to the organization. And this relates to corporate intelligence. So now back to your original question. How do I see these three intelligence? What do I mean by emotional intelligence? Well, emotional intelligence is the simplest of all things. It's simply awareness of your emotions. It's not the elimination. It's not the refinement of your emotions. Emotions are valuable. They're a radar. They're your brain's shorthand. Without thinking, your brain can see a situation, conjure up previous emotions, and that tells you a lot about what's going on. Your emotions, though, are not always serving you because emotions are not always accurate. And this is why you do not want to use emotions as a filter, a filter that you, that, uh, through which you look to see the world or a filter through which you assess yourself. You want emotions at your side serving you. And when you grow emotional intelligence, when you grow awareness of emotions, what you end up building is are people's belief in themselves. And as we go through this, I can explain how that leads to an increased belief in oneself. And so the core, the, the end output to an organization, the value of emotional intelligence to an, uh, an organization as it grows is it's growing people's belief in themselves. And in a knowledge economy, this is so important because it's this belief in oneself that allows us to embrace change. It's this belief in oneself that allows us to take ourselves and our organization to new places. In a knowledge economy, if it's about anything. It's about constant change. The second intelligence, relationship intelligence, relates to the connection between people within an organization. It is can be measured by the degree of trust that exists within the organization. Relationship intelligence is very much relates to your people's ability to build trust. And it generates the second belief that is critical to an organization's performance, and that is belief in your colleagues. And the benefit, when you believe in your colleagues, something magical happens. People are able to come together. They are able to speak frankly. They are able to speak openly. We've all had the experience of working on a great team at some point, or most of us have had the good fortune at some point in our career, although it sometimes is very brief, of working on a great team. And you get into a room and you're solving problems, you are creating, you're ripping the pin out of, out of each other's hand and you're, you're drawing on the whiteboard. Someone outside looks like World War III going in there. To the people inside that boardroom, they're having the time of their lives. Why? Because they trust each other. They're speaking frankly. They're speaking openly. And something magical is happening. And that magical thing is new ideas are being created. New products are being created. New solutions are being created. And they're being done rapidly. So the first intelligence, emotional intelligence, is about belief in self. The second intelligence, relationship intelligence, is about, is about belief in the organization. And they both contribute substantially to, to performance. The third intelligence, corporate intelligence, it's about corporate intelligence is all about being able to deeply connect the people of the organization to a common, in the 
capital words, common, future, so that they are able to release and align their energies in its achievement. I work around the world and I, and, and I work with many leaders and they ex express a frustration and I remind them. I said, do you realize you have the most educated workforce in the history of the human race? And that it is a human characteristic. It's the norm, not the exception, that people want to make a contribution. At the end of their career, they want to look back on their lives and say, I have made a difference. I have contributed in some positive way. That's not the exception. That's the norm. And people are working themselves to the point of burnout. There's a whole industry that deals uh, with burnout and stress in the workplace. And the leaders look at me in disbelief. And they say, okay, Ron, if that's the case, if I have this, these wonderful people, why does this year feel a whole lot like last year? Why does progress feel like molasses flowing uphill? I said, well, the answer to that is you have great people working hard, all trying to do good, but they all have their own definition of what doing good is. They're all on their own bus, going, all going in a, in a different direction. They all see different priorities in those high-performing organizations, very few high-performing organizations. People are going in the same direction. When people are going in a different direction, I refer to this in my book as incandescence, like the incandescent light bulb, the light bulb that lights most offices. Light comes out of the light bulb, goes all in all directions, as opposed to a laser where the light is focused. And in high-performing organizations, they, people are focused on a common goal. And more importantly, not only are they focused on it, they're focused on it because they understand it and they believe in it. Uh, there's an author, a favorite author of mine, Charles Handy, and a favorite quote comes from, him, from, come, comes from him and it relates very much to corporate intelligence. And the quote goes like this, it's the leader's responsibility to provide purpose. If you want to retain good people, if you want to retain talent, you have to create cause. Otherwise, you get a relationship with people who are working for you purely because they are earning money. Then you get very short-term thinking, very selfish thinking. When you have corporate intelligence, when you have grown corporate intelligence, what you have grown is people's belief in the organization, and then you get a phenomenal commitment. So those three intelligence relate to three, three beliefs. Emotional intelligence relates to belief in self. Relationship intelligence relates to belief in your colleagues. And corporate intelligence relates to belief in your organization. Great. And in our three future episodes in this series, we're going to break down each of those three more in depth. So we'll, we're going to be coming back to those. I like to approach a subject or a project by going to the end of it, right? So one of the first things I did with your book was go to the end of the book and see yeah. where it ends up. It's, it's kind of a way for me to look ahead and, and determine a path. And so I would love to talk about, toward the end of the book, you talk about a couple of different things. You mentioned performance curve early on. And at the end of the book, you talk about knowledge. And I know that you have said knowledge is not king. So let's dive in there first. Let's talk about knowledge. What do you mean by knowledge is not king? Ah, that is a great question. And, and, and uh, I just want to back up here a bit. Is 200 years ago, the most important asset in an organization was the machine. And good managers surrounded their machine with process in order to maximize the return on the investment. And then they surrounded the process with people. And outside of all of this was management. Management were the only ones that had the big picture understanding. And staff existed to work the process to serve the machine. Oh, about 60 years ago, this changed. 
And we went from the industrial age economy into the information age economy. And in the information age, the most important thing was not information, paradoxically. It was process. The ability to store, retrieve, and apply data to a decision at the right time. And you had the rise of the bureaucratic organization, the large organization, the IBM, the AT&T, large government, because they're the only ones that could afford the investment in the computing power and in the process development required to benefit from the computers that were, were, were coming on out of the scenes. And so process replaced the machine as the most important asset of an organization. But other than that, not much change. People surrounded, were put around the process to work the process in order to provide a return on investment. In the 90s, it changed again. And we had the advent or the, the rate of change just accelerated. And managers could no longer be all-seeing, all-knowing. And they had to delegate responsibility. They had to delegate a lot of decision-making downwards. And there's a lot of organizations that said, have said our people are our most important asset. That was good PR, but there was little truth behind it based on their actions. That started to change for the first time in the 90s because organizations were forced to take people and move people to the center of their organizational universe. And they started surrounding their people with process, but it was more than this process. If you delegate, you better make sure that everyone understands the vision, everyone understands the business goals, that you have values in place that help with the decision-making process. Otherwise, you're going to have complete chaos at the cold phase. And so the machine was at the center of the organizational universe for about 150 years. Process was there for about 50 years. People were there for about 15 years. And people are no longer your most important asset. Any organization with money in its pockets can go out and buy good people. There have been numerous cases. Probably the most infamous one would be Enron, which went out and hired the best of the best. But they failed. Why did they fail? Well, they failed because of a very touchy-feel, intangible word called culture. And they put in a culture that did not serve them in the long run. And it all comes down to culture has replaced people as the organization's most important asset. And this is all because of the rate of change. In 1935, the doubling rate of knowledge was 35 years. In 1975, the doubling rate of knowledge was seven years. We are now at a stage where the doubling rate of knowledge is approaching about 11 hours. You go away for a day and you're, the world, which you have to pay attention to because your comp competition is paying attention to it, has quadrupled. Right. And so anything I know, the world's going to know in weeks. And so any knowledge I have is no longer power. But what is power is the ability of two people within an organization to come together and to share their knowledge and create new knowledge on an ongoing basis. And people coming together and how they work together and how they interact and their ability to interact all comes down to the organization's culture and the ability to create ongoing new value is what organizations today in their prosperous developed economies required in order to stay there. There's so much, Ron, that we can dive into. I'm so glad we're going to be able to come back and talk a little bit more in depth on this topic. Before we wrap up today, I would love for you to talk about a little bit about supporting, and you've touched on this in the last few minutes, supporting the individual because they are what makes up the whole. Years ago, I studied 
systems thinking, a systems thinking approach to business. I had a wonderful mentor who was teaching a master's type class at, at a tech startup that I worked for. And he talked a great deal about epistemology, about systems thinking and understanding that when an individual fails, the system failed the individual. So I'd love for you to, to dive in a little bit more about that and talk about how we can achieve success at, as a whole because we are recognizing the input and the value of the individual. So let me rephrase your question in order to make sure I, I understand it, is when you look at those organizations that have a high-performing culture, there are a couple of characteristics of those high-performing cultures which are common to them, and they're quite unique. One is, is that people that work in these organizations care more about the success of a whole than they care about individual success. Another characteristic of these high-performing cultures is joy of work, is people look forward to Monday mornings. They look forward to getting up and going to work. They're excited by what they are doing. And by the way, that excitement is how we all, every single one of us, starts our jobs being excited. But for some reason, we rapidly lose that, and the job becomes a way of earning money. It doesn't take long for people to be living for the weekends. It doesn't take long for people at a relatively young age, at their 30s, to start thinking about retirement, pension benefits, that whole thing. So what has happened to change that? Or more importantly, what are organizations that have high-performance cultures, what are they doing to keep their people constantly engaged? And the answer to that is it comes back to those three intelligences. Is, is they are creating an environment where people believe in themselves. They're creating an environment in which there's a joy of connection with colleagues. And they are investing huge amount of, of energy in understanding, helping people understanding the difference that their work is making in, in, in the world. The issue is, is that at the management level, Managers still have the big picture, and it's easy for them to understand and, and remain mo motivated. When the work goes down to the worker and the, and the pieces of work become smaller, you don't always see the end game. And the, the role of the manager is to constantly connect people, to connect people's work to the end game and help people understand how they are making a positive contribution to another human being's life. They, uh, a colleague of mine did a study on the half-life of a communication where you, you help people understand, you, you connect them to the vision, you connect them to their business goals, you, connect, you help them understand the difference that they're making, and how long before people forget half of what has been shared with them. And what he found in all organizations, public, private, large, small, he found that that half-life was six weeks. And so what this means is that communication on the part of the manager and repetition, uh, uh, being able to repeat over and over again why this is important, the contribution you're making, it's nonstop. As Max Dupree said in, in his books, if you're not sick and tired of communicating, you're probably not communicating enough. Well, that is true. <laughs> it has been such a pleasure, Ron, to have you on the show. We're going to be continuing this series, Building Organizations That Leap Tall Buildings in a Single Bound. We've been speaking with the author of that book, Ron Weens who is also an advisor and a public speaker on cultural change. Ron, if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, uh, they can go to my website, which is ronweens.com. And Weens is spelled W-I-E-N-S. 
or they can email me, ron at ronweens.com. And that's and look- ronweens, W-I-E-N-S.com. Yes. Perfect. Ron, it's been a pleasure. When we come back, we're going to be talking about those three key points, emotional, relationship, and corporate intelligence. Until then, keep in mind that people are not always the most important asset, but they are important. Is that right, Ron? That is correct. All right. Thanks. We'll be back soon. 